The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jeff Cutmore at Buckingham Palace. Welcome to this special edition of Squawk Box as the United Kingdom begins 10 days of mourning. This as Queen Elizabeth II dies aged 96, the end of the reign of the UK's and the world's longest serving monarch. His Majesty King Charles III now ascends to the throne. He says the loss of his mother will be keenly felt by all. Condolences pour in from around the globe. World leaders praise her for her dignity and dedication and mourn the passing at an international community level. In other news, the ECB hikes rates by a record 75 basis points to the highest level since 2011, pushing Eurozone yields higher, whilst Christine Lagarde pledges to keep up the inflation fight. Based on our current assessment, over the next several meetings, we expect to raise interest rates further to dampen demand and guard against the risk of a persistent upward shift in inflation expectations. Fed Chair Jerome Powell echoes Christine Lagarde's comments, vowing to continue his battle with inflation stateside. Despite this, US equities push higher as Wall Street posts back-to-back gains. It, it is very much uh, our view and my view that we need to act now forthrightly, strongly, as we have been doing, and we need to keep at it until the job is done. Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96. According to Buckingham Palace, she passed away peacefully on Thursday afternoon at her Balmoral estate in Scotland, with an official announcement shortly after 6.30pm local time. Her Majesty was the UK's longest-serving monarch, having overseen 15 prime ministers during her 70-year reign. The Queen's death marks the end of Britain's second Elizabethan era and the start of the reign of her son, King Charles III. Following the announcement, the UK's new king released a statement mourning the death of his mother, calling it a moment of, quote, the greatest sadness for me and all members of my family. At age 73, King Charles III is the oldest monarch to ascend to the throne. So we've got Jumana, as you've seen in the headlines, in Edinburgh, and Jeff is at Buckingham Palace. But let's get started uh, with the most recent timeline of what we've seen and perhaps what comes next with Jumana in Scotland. Jumana, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Steve. Well, it is uh, indeed a heavy, heavy day that we're witnessing today. And as uh, Jeff mentioned in the headlines, the UK is entering into a national period of mourning that will span over 10 days. Now, Her Majesty the Queen uh, was uh, pronounced dead yesterday at 6.30 p.m. She was uh, resting 
in her Balmoral estate and has been there for the majority of the summer. Uh, in terms of succession, the uh, crown passes automatically onto her son, who is now known as King Charles III, and arrangements uh, will kick in. Now, these are part and parcel of arrangements that have been in the works for many, many decades now. So everything that's about to happen in the next couple of weeks, weeks in the lead up to her state funeral would have been agreed on by senior royal officials. Now, in terms of uh, what happens directly, uh, her body is uh, sitting in a coffin right now in the Balmoral estate uh, in the ballroom. Uh, it is uh, covered by the Royal Standard of Scotland, which is a flag that is uh, set aside for the monarch and sovereigns and, and draped also by a wreath of flowers. It is expected to stay there for the next 24 hours after which uh, it will make its way from the Balmoral Estate, which is about 100 miles from where we are right now, to Holyrood Palace right behind me here. That is the official Queen, well, official monarch's residence over here in Scotland. Once the coffin makes it to, uh, the, um, to Holyrood Palace, it will be moved to the throne room, uh, after which uh, the uh, senior members of the royal family will show up and there will be a procession that will take the coffin from Holyrood Palace to St. Giles Cathedral uh, for a service. And uh, it is expected that all of the Queen's children will be there and will hold a vigil around the coffin uh, in, in a ritual known as the Prince's Ritual. After which there will be a 24-hour period in which the public can come in and pay their respects. And then it is only after that 24-hour period has passed that the coffin will then be passed on to Edinburgh Station. The expectation is that the body will then be moved down from Edinburgh to London, after which the events in London would start to take place. Uh, just a quick note also on uh, why Scotland and the Balmoral Estate. Uh, the castle holds a very sincere place in Her Majesty's heart. Uh, she had spent a lot of her childhood here, a lot of fond memories growing up. She'd spent a lot of time with uh, her sister, Princess Margaret, when she was a young child. She also spent a good portion of her honeymoon with Prince Philip here. It was uh, an estate that she was very fond of. She loved going up to the Highlands, as uh, many viewers would be familiar with. And it was the, the place of her final passing. Now, senior members of the royal family flew up to be uh, by Her Majesty's side yesterday at around 5 p.m. They got here shortly afterwards. Uh, the Buckingham Palace put out a press statement saying that she had indeed died peacefully uh, in her sleep. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, this is a heavy day of mourning. The whole United Kingdom will be entering into a 10-day mourning period, the royal family for a month. Uh, but definitely her loss is felt not just here, not just the UK and the Commonwealth, but for the international community as well. Jamana, thank you very much. Let's get to Jeff now, who's outside Buckingham Palace with His Majesty King Charles III expected to return to London today. And Jeff, I gather national mourning has meant that many have already begun turning up to the palace to pay their respects and leave flowers and many notes for the Queen, their beloved monarch. Yeah, absolutely, Karen. I mean, the, the, the scenes uh, that we saw here last night, very reminiscent of the passing, the relatively recent passing, of course, of the Queen Mother. And then if you think back to 1997, uh, the death of Princess Diana and the outpouring of grief that we saw across the nation. So last night, we did see people beginning to collect outside Buckingham Palace, leaving flowers, leaving tributes, leaving leaving lighted candles as they wish to express their sense of condolence and loss here at 
Buckingham Palace. Uh, what Jamana um, has begun describing is, is a process that is well understood and will fall into place as the days pass. Uh, it's, it's long been known as Operation London Bridge and it defines how the security services, how members of the royal family and how the British nation comes together to commemorate and mark the death of the Queen and ultimately it will see the Queen's body lie in state in Westminster Hall in the Palace of Westminster uh, and that will be a significant moment that sees uh, the rest of the country have an opportunity to also commemorate the life of the Queen and what a remarkable life it has been. I mean we can talk about the formal process but I don't think we should shy away from just remembering as the longest serving monarch she had a, a tenure that effectively spanned from the, uh, the, the Prime Ministership of Winston Churchill in the 1950s all the way through of course to just days ago uh, Liz Truss becoming her 15th Prime Minister. Uh, and as we've seen, the um, condolence, condolences coming in from world leaders, uh, President Biden talking about a, a remarkable era that she uh, uh, presided over. Uh, as we've seen these um, condolences come in, I think six living UK Prime Ministers have also expressed their own well wishes and prayers for the royal family at this time. And I just want to, as, as Liz, Liz Truss became the Queen's 15th Prime Minister, maybe it's just worth hearing what Liz Truss had to say about this remarkable life. We are all devastated by the news that we have just heard from Balmoral. The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation and to the world. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Our country has grown and flourished under her reign. Britain is the great country it is today because of her. She ascended the throne just after the Second World War. She championed the development of the Commonwealth from a small group of seven countries to a family of 56 nations spanning every continent of the world. We are now a modern, thriving, dynamic nation. Through thick and thin, Queen Elizabeth II provided us with the stability and the strength that we needed. She was the very spirit of Great Britain, and that spirit will endure. Now, for those who do wish to uh, leave their respects, there are books of condolence here at Buckingham Palace, at the St. James Palaces, at other royal palaces. Uh, so there will be an opportunity for the public, should they so desire, to go and leave their own personal message. Uh, throughout the course of the day, we are also expecting, I think, bells to peal in various venues, St Paul's, uh, Westminster Abbey and probably across the country and for those who are unable of course to make it to any of the royal palaces or who just wish to leave their own dignified moment of tribute, there will be two minutes of silence to mark the Queen's life. And then, of course, over successive days, we will see other parts of the uh, formal process of the Queen's um, uh, um, lying in state and, and funeral unfold. And ultimately, I think on Saturday, we are going to see the ascension 
Council meet, which will formally note and mark the arrival of, of, of King Charles III. Steve. Um, thank you very much indeed for that, uh, Jeff, in uh, central London, Buckingham Palace, and of course, Umana in Edinburgh as well. Um, Queen Elizabeth II was an enormous historical figure, and you've only got to look at the period that uh, her reign spanned and the number of prime ministers, which Jeff referenced that she'd uh, uh, had under her here in the United Kingdom, the number of presidents in the United States as well. Um, the Queen Elizabeth had met 14 US presidents, uh, every single president since World War II, except just one, Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, and of course, when she ascended to the throne, uh, in 1952, um, she'd already met as uh, Princess Elizabeth um, Harry Truman. But then you think about the historical figures that were uh, presidents under her reign, you realise how magnificent a reign it was. Uh, Eisenhower, Kennedy, um, Nixon, and of course Ronald Reagan as well. Uh, you can see her there with uh, uh, George Bush as well. So the Queen, a huge figure in the transatlantic relationship, as uh, Mr Biden was referencing yesterday. And I can weigh in from the Commonwealth perspective too, yep. having grown up from in a Commonwealth country. I mean, the Queen meant a great deal to Australia, for instance, and uh, visiting uh, many, many years back. And uh, that visit, I think, carried so much weight with the public in Australia. And don't forget, there have been challenges against whether some of these nations should stay part of the Commonwealth. But it was the Queen and her resolve and the connection that she had with a lot of these countries that made such a difference. I have to say, she did something like extraordinary, which I didn't know about, and I only found out overnight as I was driving in, that when she first went to Australia as Queen, um, first major visit of her reign, um, she visited, something extraordinary, she was there for 58 days, which is a huge time to be away from the family anyway, but 58 days, she visited 57 different places in that time. I mean, I don't, you and I know how tr trouble it is, how hard it is travelling for a week or two, but to do that, I mean, extraordinary stamina. And back in the day, if you think about the lack of transportation yep. options, much harder to get around, much slower to get around. Let's get another voice on this. Sean Lang is Senior Lecturer for History at Anglia Ruskin University. Uh, and Sean, thank you very much indeed for joining us today and, and adding your expertise uh, to uh, what is a very sad time globally. But, but I want to just put into perspective, if you could, Sean, just what an important historical figure in both the 20th and the 21st century, Her Majesty the Queen was as well. We, we look at her, of course, from a United Kingdom perspective. Karen was looking from a Commonwealth Australian perspective. But she was a huge international historical figure, wasn't she? She certainly was, and I think much more so than people have thought during, during her reign. It's the sort of thing which you realise when you step back, which, of course, we're doing at the moment, but, but also sort of while she was alive, you know, if you sort of step back and thought about it, there was a real influence there. Um, if you start with the Commonwealth, because that was very dear to her heart, and she developed that a very close relationship, you know, a, a friendship indeed, with Commonwealth leaders. But as you were also hearing there, with the people of the Commonwealth as well, because the sort of um, connection that she had by simply by travelling around, by being seen and by meeting people, meant that she became an international figure far more than most in, um, you know, national leaders are ever able to do. It's very noticeable, for example, that not only was she travelling around Australia a lot, but it was in Australia and New Zealand. It was on a trip there in 
in I think late sixties. Um, yeah, late sixties. I think when she first did that walkabout, and of course walkabout an Australian term um, of going and meeting people, sort of breaking away from the the formal procession part, as it were, going over to the barriers, talking with the people, which she then did on on all her occasions. Uh, you know, all around the world, and that's um, direct contact, which I think people in the United Kingdom are very aware of, but sort of forget that it was there for uh, people el- elsewhere as well. Meant that this is, I, mean, I suppose, only someone like the Pope has got that sort of direct connection with people from so many different um, uh, parts of the world, so, so many different languages, so many different nationalities, and that was something very special. And it gave her um, a sort of prestige, um, you know, far beyond the, rel- the the borders of her realm. And in terms of international um, influence, you've got that that's you know close friendship with American presidents. Um, you've got the sort of respect with European heads of state, um, as well as her, as well as the friendship with with um, Commonwealth ones. And this, I can't think of anyone really who can replicate that sort of um, direct influence on such a wide scale. So yes, it, she certainly was a figure in um, you know the, the operation of the world, and therefore in the in the story of world history in the. 20th and 21st centuries. Sean, the recent celebrations for the Platinum Jubilee really magnified how significant the Queen has been through crises in particular. And as we now talk about today, we have a a monarch that's left us at a time when the world is in crisis again. What does that mean for the next phase as King Charles III takes the throne and now is effectively steering a nation, Britain, in mourning, but also in crisis? And as we take a look around the world, many nations facing difficulties now too. How do you prepare for something like that when we're at such a difficult crossroads at this point? I suppose one way to prepare is to spend your whole life in in, in preparation as, as as he has. Um it's a it's a difficult role. Uh it's a delicate one because of the limitations of the constitution. And of course, he's had the very best sort of training through his life, but but you know, simply by the example of, of his mother, the Queen, um, of how to of the difference between speaking out as uh, as a citizen and as as you can, and then the very, very sort of tight limitations that the constitution imposes upon the sovereign. Um, and that is a, an adjustment that he, he will have to make. Indeed, he must be making now. But it's also one, of course, of which he's fully aware. But in terms of uh, the sort of leadership role, um, I think what's very interesting with King Charles is the way in which his own reputation, first of all, has changed enormously you know, for the better. If you sort of if you think back to the 1990s and how low his reputation was at the time, and it's Climbed back massively, um, and he, you know, there's a sort of acceptance, indeed, indeed, a sort of celebration of, of him and uh, the the Queen Consort, as we must get used to to calling the the former Duchess of Cornwall. Um, so I think there's been a sort of a, an ability to change, to adapt, and a change, if you like, in the way in which he's received as well. But also, it's very common when you look at some examples of princes of Wales in the past who then got a sort of transformation in terms of their reputation when they became king. Edward VII, Queen Victoria's um, eldest son, um, who had a very sort of raffish reputation as Prince of Wales, as king, as king 
much, much more more widely and deeply respected. And indeed, if you go back far enough into Shakespeare's um, Henry the, you know, Prince Hal, Henry V, um, that idea of the transformation of the uh, sort of Jack the Lad type of Prince of Wales into the respected king has has a long history behind it. So it's something which you know I think uh, you, know, um, you know King Charles knows very well. And uh, and he knows that that transformation will, will need to be made because you're quite right. Um, in the current economic crisis with war um, in, in Europe, all of these sorts of things call for that sort of, um, I was going to say figurehead, but it's a little bit more than that, that sense of leadership over and above party politics. And that's what the Queen gave so very well and was so good at. And that is very much the role model that unquestionably you know, he will be following. Well, Sean, let me ask you then a, a follow-up question to that, because um, how do you see the, uh, the House of Windsor and, and the royal family holding on to its relevance in the modern era? And I know this seems like a tough question coming so quickly after the Queen's passing, but she, in many ways, was that spine that maintained the importance and significance and relevance of the royal family through a 70 years where, quite frankly, Britain's status on the world stage has become a little smaller. Uh, so how do you think King Charles continues to keep both the UK relevant and, more particularly, the royal family relevant in this modern era? Two points are connected in that by keeping the royal family and the monarchy relevant, in a sense, you keep um, Britain relevant. In, in, um, you know, that's there are other things, of course, for politicians to do, but the two the two things for the for the monarchy are connected. In terms of the monarchy itself, you do it by continually changing while maintaining a sense that this is still the same institution. Now, that's the sort of thing the Queen did, and there were enormous changes that she oversaw uh, within the monarchy while never losing the sense that this was, uh, you know, she, she was the Queen. That there's, there's the sort of what's sometimes we call the magic of, of, of monarchy. Just to give a quick example, but a very good one, I think. Um, you cannot imagine in the 1950s that the monarch would ever be able to do a sort of spoof with James Bond and, and yet still retain the, the sort of respect and affection um, and as it were, get away with it. And yet, as we know, she did. Now, in the case of um, Prince Charles, the way in which you change is that you need to be in touch with the uh, sort of uh, the interests, the priorities, the zeitgeist, as they say, of, of your people. And in his case, it has to be said that there are a number of issues, like, for example, the one on which he really made his name in terms of speaking out was the was um, the environment, uh, ecological issues, climate, you know, climate change. These are things which are absolutely chimed with the priorities of the British people, and of course, the, the people of the, the wider, wider world. And in some ways, I think you can see that you know, he, he could very well be speaking, as indeed the Queen did, um, in, in tune with the feelings of, of the people, even if it's not in, in line with, with the, the policies and priorities of, of government. Um, similarly, so things like um, in education, work with young people, these are things where he's been active, but also, I think, very much in touch with, with people's priorities. So that sort that way of changing and keeping in touch with what people want to see happening um, is, is crucial. 
coupled with, of course, the uh, his, his the next generation, because Prince William and uh, I was going to, I'm trying to think they're now the Duke and Duchess of both Cambridge and Cornwall. Have to get used to that. They, I think, absolutely. Um, uh, sort of millennial generation, very much in tune with that younger generation's outlook. So I think unquestionably the monarchy continues to change, continues to evolve, while keeping that close relationship with the people. That's how you survive, and that's how the, you know that's what the British monarchy has shown itself very able um, and uh, to, to do uh, under the Queen and indeed to some extent under her predecessors. And that's I think we will probably see continuing under King Charles. Mm. Uh, well, so you talk about the evolution of the monarchy uh, throughout Her Majesty's reign. I, I just wonder uh, about the future of the Commonwealth uh, realm going forwards. We've already heard murmurs from uh, the likes of Australia, New Zealand, Jamaica, who are looking to for potentially to move towards a Republican model. Uh, how do you see this all playing out under the reign of King Charles III? I think it's highly likely that, mo uh, that most, if not all, um, the Commonwealth uh, countries will will do that. Um, uh, I mean, there may be, there may be some which which retain the the British uh, monarch as as the head of state, but I think the major ones, um, you know, have made that have made that um, sign. Uh, as you say, Canada, Australia, uh, Jamaica, um, Barbados. Um, you know, the, I, th I think that's likely to be quite general. That doesn't, of course, mean that the Commonwealth itself. Um, has to uh, it, end or anything like that. Um, far from it. I think there's still a very strong commitment to the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth is a very strange organisation. It's the sort of thing which you wouldn't create from scratch. It's, it's evolved. And yet it's it's found a different role for itself. Um, very much, for example, in the realm of a sort of social development, climate change development, um, relations between the sort of countries at different levels of development around the world. It's, it's, it's developed something which is very different from the sort of post-imperial um, origins of it. Um, and again, many of those are the sort of uh, issues that uh, King Charles has always been interested in. And of course, he will, uh, it will now become the head of the Commonwealth. That was agreed by Commonwealth leaders uh, a few years ago. It's not part of his hereditary title or anything like that, but it was agreed that he would be the next head of the Commonwealth. So um, I think the Commonwealth uh, and the relationships with the British Crown will change, no question. But that doesn't necessarily mean a sort of moving away in the sense of, sort of cutting off ties. Um, but it, it, and that's something where, again, the relationship, the personal relationship, um, is is very important in shaping the institution. So yes, I think you're absolutely right. There will be those changes, but it won't be the uh, the blow to the institution that I think people sometimes assume it might be. Sean, they've been fantastic answers and we appreciate you uh, coming on air to speak to us uh, about a whole variety of the issues, past and presents, regarding uh, the change in the throne from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth to King Charles III. Thank you, Sean. Sean Lang, Senior Lecturer in History at Anglia Ruskin University. Right, Scorebox, we'll be right back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
The ECB has raised interest rates by 75 basis points uh, in the largest rate hike in the central bank's history. ECB President Christine Lagarde said action had to be taken against inflation, hinting at more big hikes to come and leaving markets guessing whether it will raise rates past its neutral range. Now, the energy crisis has also darkened the outlook for the eurozone, with Christine Lagarde telling CNBC the baseline growth scenario for next year has fallen to 0.9 percent and warning a recession could be on the cards. In the baseline, we don't forecast negative growth in 23. In the downside scenario, we do. That downside scenario differs from the current situation in that it includes, in particular, total shutdown of all Russian gas supply. Well, we are all, we're almost there. There is still a, a bit of flow going through the Ukrainian ones. Um, but we also uh, foresee uh, rationing across uh, the whole euro area and no measure of compensation between the shortage of gas supply and other alternative sources of supply. So nothing coming from you know, either Asia or other producers of, uh, of, of gas. And in particular, I don't think we take into account the, the, uh, the LNG that we could be uh, sourcing from more of it from Norway or from the United States. So it's, it's a really dark downside scenario, but it's one that concludes to a 23 um, recession. Hawkish commentary around the rate scenario from here from the ECB was enough to provoke a response on bond markets. The Bund had been trading at just over the 1.5% mark for most of the past few trading sessions. We jumped up to 1.73 on the safe haven paper. The 10-year on Italy, you can see now above the 4% mark, it had been inching ever closer to 4%, peeling back away, but well and truly through that level yesterday. And you can see holding now 4.09%. So we've been talking a lot about whether there are now concerns about these elevated levels for the likes of Italy and Greece when it comes to the rate that they're contending with given the high debt loads. So already we are seeing those concerns around this 4% mark. The rest of the spreads you can see on Spain, 2.89 are again more elevated than we've got on the safe haven German Bund, 2.3 on France at this stage. And a reaction on Euro, not a huge one relatively speaking, but finally a bid that pushed it higher versus the US dollar, that one way trade uh, just giving way to a two-way trade now back above the 1.00 level 1.0064 and we'd broken below 99 cents uh, in recent trading sessions so quite significant to get above that psychological level seven tenths higher morning session euro losing territory versus sterling also down versus the japanese yen but perched higher versus the swissy steve Right. Okay. let us uh, move on, of course, uh, juxtaposed with the huge moves we're seeing in interest rates as well. We also have an energy crisis. Uh, EU energy ministers meet for an extraordinary session in Brussels today to discuss the bloc's energy crisis. Just days after Gazprom announced it would stop gas flows through Nord Stream 1, blaming Western sanctions. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen set out a number of immediate options available to the bloc on Wednesday after a slew of countries announced relief measures ahead of what's expected to be a difficult winter. Well, Aneta, um, brilliant work, by the way, in Frankfurt yesterday. I thought that was absolutely the right question to ask Madame Lagarde, and I thought it was a fascinating answer. You've hot-footed it now to Brussels as well. So, A, we appreciate all the huge amount of work you're putting in covering these massive stories. Uh, and B, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in Brussels. 
Yeah, it's, it's the Emergency Energy Summit, which brings me here to Brussels. Um, and, of course, the time is uh, very... It, they only have a very short time to actually tackle the whole thing because, clearly, the energy situation is getting out of control for the Eurozone. We have talks about the risk of deindustrialization. We have certain companies like steel smelters and others who are already cutting down on production because it's no longer possible to produce on a competitive basis uh, because of the high energy price. The problem with the energy price is that the gas price is uh, tangled to the electricity price, meaning uh, electricity, which is produced through, uh, by gas use, is actually dictating the price uh, fix uh, on the markets. And that is why electricity prices are skyrocketing as well. At the same time, we have the nuclear power shortage in France. Uh, in France. It's sort of some sort of a, a perfect storm. And the Czech energy or economy minister, I should say, um, has summoned that emergency uh, summit here today in order to come up with a common solution and also to come up most likely with liquidity measures for utilities and the industries because clearly it is an emergency situation and we are only at the beginning of the heating period. So perhaps we take a listen of what the minister himself told me just earlier on, on which proposals are on the table and what is he is expecting from that meeting today. There are uh, many offers how to solve uh, the problem. Some of them, I think, we have the understanding this is something which can work. Some of, some of them uh, might need uh, more discussion. We have to understand that we are facing a really big energy crisis, which is uh, mainly driven by the war, uh, the economic war between Europe and Russia. We don't need to play with the world. And uh, the crisis is caused by lack of supply or unability to supply on one side and, uh, and uh, increased demand and extreme nervosity of the second side. So I am pretty sure that we can uh, agree on how to supply the liquidity to the market in, in order to defreeze de the market simply to ensure that there will be uh, enough uh, uh, offer and supply. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, then when it comes to things like, uh, like uh, unexpected inframarginal revenues or price caps, this is something uh, which is uh, intervention in the market and uh, we, 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 we might need uh, also today a little bit uh, little bit more discussion on these topics, but definitely we have to send a clear and strong signal. There, there is no time to lose. So in other words, what you think you can agree on might be extraordinary emergency liquidity measures for the sector? I am pretty sure that this is something which can work. Uh, I think we will also agree or we should agree on the certain mechanism of savings. So the quick fix is just throwing money at the problem in a way with, through uh, extraordinary liquidity measures, which then uh, would ensure that utilities and also uh, energy-intensive industries actually can weather that storm of high electricity prices. But I guess the medium-term fix needs to see some common solution among European member countries. For now, everybody's doing their own thing. Germany is discussing a windfall tax on, on profits. Uh, Italy has 
has such a thing in place already. France is looking into capping electricity prices or is actually capping electricity prices. But there's not like one common approach as ever with the European Union. It's difficult to find a solution because every member state has a different electricity st uh, structure. The, the French do have their nuclear problem. Germans uh, are depending on gas um, and as the Italians do. So I guess this will be a very difficult discussion coming up with a common solution. But the most likely scenario to sum it up are liquidity measures, a price cap on electricity and a potential decoupling from gas and uh, electricity prices because that's clearly needed given the situation on the gas market. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.